As always, please note that the views expressed by our guests during this episode do not necessarily reflect the views of our podcast or of the mission Steiger that we represent. Hope you enjoy the episode. You're listening to the Provoke and Inspire podcast. Welcome to the Provoke and Inspire podcast, learning to follow Jesus in a post-Christian culture. Now, here's the funny thing, ladies and gentlemen. Our guest would probably vehemently disagree with our tagline because he would argue that we probably do not live in a post-Christian culture. That's a little teaser. That is true. Uh, This episode features the author and historian and broadcaster Tom Holland, not Spider-Man, sorry, the historian, and, and I believe... Uh, far more uh, valuable contributor to society. No offense, Spider-Man. Your tights are great. Uh, <laughs> Tom Holland is someone I have been aware of for a little while. He wrote a book, Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the West. Uh, he is a brilliant writer, brilliant historian, and not a believer at the moment, and yet writes this incredibly honest uh, description of how Jesus, and I would say specifically the cross, right? I mean, he doesn't shy away from from the the centrality of the message, how the cross and the resurrection. I mean, the fact. Uh, sorry, Ben. the the fact that the, the fact that he traveled all the way to yeah. was it Iraq that he went to within within weeks of a Kurdish town being uh, sort of regained by the Kurdish forces from ISIS. He was there within weeks yeah. where he said there were only a couple of miles. I mean, we're giving it away. Yeah, yeah, sorry. All this to say, you got you got to check this out. He is brilliant. You know, it, 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 I know a lofty comparison to C.S. Lewis, but you know when someone's so brilliant but so simple, he has that combination, and I think it's going to be worthy to listen to. We're going to do this in two parts, so this is going to be part one. Uh, so definitely check out both. Uh, but man, it was a killer, killer conversation that you're going to want to check out. It's probably true, Luke. You probably could have just not been recording because you haven't said anything. You've just smirked awkwardly yeah, yeah. this whole time. Uh, this No, but this is one that I've been looking forward to for a long time, Tom Holland. I mean, we've mentioned him so many times in the podcast. Um, right. I like I I'm pretty sure Ben you mentioned that it was from Justin Briley. I think we were talking about him before that. It has been a while. He's really had a, a an important influence for us, so it's pretty cool. Oh, and you're going to want to hear when he he compares Dr. Martin Luther King to the Beatles. Yeah. In, uh, and in what the... you're really going to want to hear is how Luke was like <laughs> Dr. Martin. I knew you were going to bring that up. I blanked. King. I blanked. So everybody has to listen to this so and find the moment when I can't remember uh, Dr. Martin Luther King's name. And so I blanked in the middle of it. Dr. Martin, Martin King. King. <laughs> and then he, he very he very clearly corrects me. You know? yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It was quite hilarious. It was Dr. Quite... Martin Luther King, yes, it was an important person. <laughs> yes, it's like, uh, yeah, MLK. I mean, hello, this isn't like, you know, your mailman, Billy Johnson. If you admire Tom for nothing other than his brain power from a like, hist- like wrapped around history, it's, the- I was like, Ugh, like just yeah. trying to keep up. It was his, it- his BPI is off the charts or, or the brain power <laughs> index, if you will. 
Whereas Chad actually officially registered on the BPI for the first time yesterday. Uh, I even have like these veins popping in my forehead that are like evidence, evidence of this. It was after hanging out with a certain, uh, let's call him C. Gross. No, no, that's too obvious. Craig G. Let's go with Craig G. CBD. All right. Couple of quick things, because you're probably skipping through this. Don't forget to subscribe if you stumble on this on YouTube or Facebook. If you see this live streaming and you're like, wow, that's what they look like. That's disappointing. Uh, Make sure you go on iTunes and subscribe. Leave us a rating and review. Uh, Let us know what you think on iTunes. Give us a little, you know, couple of stars, preferably five, and tell us if you enjoy this podcast and why. Uh, And then lastly, really quickly, we have a Steiger event coming up. Actually, this is uh, what Tristan put in here. The Steiger Mission School. That's quite the event. Uh, It goes from July 30th (laughs) to September 5th, 2021. Uh, It's a time to unhook, seek God, and prepare to reach the global youth culture. It is going to happen. In the name of Jesus, we're going to have a Steiger Mission School this summer. COVID be darned. It's going to happen, right, Right, David? It's going to happen in Germany. If not Germany, maybe Albania. Yep. And if not Albania, Albania. (laughs) <laughs> this could all be then at least somewhere where Martin King is present. Yes, Martin <laughs> King. <laughs> Steiger.org slash SMS. Enough of us, enough of Luke. Let's get to the podcast. Peace. Welcome to the Provoke and Inspire podcast. Uh, we are very, very excited for you today because we have an incredible guest, someone that I uh, have been very inspired by and who I've been wanting on the show for a long time. Uh, we have Tom Holland. He is a award-winning historian, biographer, and broadcaster. He has written many acclaimed books, including In the Shadow of the Sword, uh, Rubicon, The Triumph and Tragedy of the Roman Republic, and most recently, Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World, which is going to be uh, dominating our, our conversation today. Uh, so, Tom, thank you so much for being on our show. Thanks very much for having me. Very honored. Hey, so I, I hate to interrupt, but I just got a, I got a text from Nigel. He said that he he's a big fan of yours, Tom. Do you know who Nigel oh, is? I like the sound of Nigel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> he sounds great. But He does sound great. Bless you, Nigel. Yeah, but, but he wants <laughs> to know if you really are Spider-Man. <laughs> No, I'm not. Uh, and that's a terrible question. You've really gone down in my relationship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Nigel, I've got to tell you, you're not the first person to have made that joke. Oh. Yeah. Come on, be more original, Nigel. Yeah, that. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I really wrestled with whether I should go there. Millions have. No, Millions yeah. have. Yeah. Well, Nigel went there, so it's all good. Look, your your star was rising to just unknown heights, and then along came... Plummeted. It just plummeted to the depths. Oh, I, I hate yeah. to say it, but it's all right. We all you know we all have shadows we must live in and behind and under and such um (laughs) look to give you a little context so we interact a fair bit with justin brierley uh and he first mentioned uh, a debate you had with ac grayling which is how i got down the rabbit trail that eventually led to your book Uh, i devoured your book um i i thought it was incredibly fascinating i i'm did history at university and so already from that academic perspective and then of course has it uh, how it intersected with what with my faith i thought it was it was just absolutely fascinating um now i'd imagine for those that don't know you uh and some who do you're a bit of a interesting maybe even enigmatic person in the sense that again i'll let you speak for yourself but you probably wouldn't identify as a christian in the way we would I, i don't know we could we could talk about that and yet 
your book passionately defends the impact of Christianity on Western culture at a time when a lot of people kind of go with the opposite message. I mean, including the debate you had with AC Grayling. Um, and, and so I would love as a starting point to just get a sense for what, what inspired you to write this? What, what was kind of the, 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 what led you to have this passion to write about the impact of Christianity on culture? Well, it's a, it's a common take that when people write fiction novels, often they're drawing on their childhood, um, right. you know, on, on things they went through when they were young. And actually, the same can be true for nonfiction. And that's definitely the case with the, the works of history that I've written. So when I was a child, I was um, raised in the Church of England. I went to church, sung in the choir, went to Sunday school. Could we have a little preview of the choir singing that may have gone down? No, down? you can't okay. because <laughs> you, you can't because my singing was terrible even then. See, I have this London choir image in my head. Yeah, it was kind of on its uppers even then. Um, but uh, and so I kind of believed in a, a kind of faint faint kind of way but the truth was that I was much more interested in the Greek gods I found them much more kind of charismatic and kind of sexy and dramatic um and I, I really adored the Romans in the way that previously I'd adored dinosaurs because they were kind of big and fierce and glamorous and, and I guess safely extinct and to be honest if you'd asked me you know Pontius Pilate or Jesus I'd have completely gone for Pontius Pilate you know, he had the soldiers, he had the purple, he had the eagles, you know, Jesus does this kind of scrub. <laughs> um, and so when I came to write history, that was what I wanted to start with. Um, and I'd always kind of had the sense that um, where I came from was was from the classical world. Um, you know, I stopped believing in, in the Christian God. I stopped believing in any God, really. Um, and I kind of bought into the idea that there'd been a, a, a time of kind of philosophical greatness that had then been blotted out by Christianity. And I kind of saw the Greek and the Roman world as blue skies and the coming of Christianity as you know, grey autumn drizzle moving in and then kind of clears up again with the 18th century and the Enlightenment. Uh, and that was kind of the myth that I bought into. But when I began writing you know, very concentrated work, so really sitting, get, trying to get into the heads of the Greeks and the Romans in a way that I hadn't done previously. I just found them more and more alien the more I wrote about them. Um, I, I found them frightening, I found them unsettling, uh, and I began to realize that they were just incredibly different and that that actually I, I had almost, very, you know, I had very little kind of sense of dissent from them at, at all. And I began to realize that in almost everything I brought, so not just my morals or my ethics, but my kind of deep rooted assumptions about the way that society should be organized. Basically, I was Christian. And that was even on the level of language, because it was trying to write about, say, Athens or Rome and use words like, oh, I don't know, religion or secular or even democracy, even though it was a Greek word. Uh, all of these words were so kind of shadowed by Christian assumptions that it was actually really, really difficult to get back and see the world through Greek or Roman eyes. And so I wanted to write Dominion to, to test that sense that I had that actually Christianity had changed everything. And that when we, we, we try and look back at the pre-Christian world, it's as though there's a kind of haze of dust and all those little particles are the, 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 the particles of Christian influence. So that was really my, my, my kind of gut assumption. And a key part of that is that people who think 
in the modern West that they've emancipated themselves from Christianity. Firstly, they tend to have done it for reasons that are themselves Christian. And even if they don't define themselves as Christian, their perspectives, their understandings, their assumptions, the very languages that they use if they come from, you know, from Western Europe, if they're using kind of West European languages, are so shot through with Christian with Christian assumptions that they are, to all intents and purposes, Christian. It's it's fascinating because I think, in a way, Tom, I identify with what you've done in a book because we, like, as a podcast and as an organization that we're part of, are also trying to think about how Christianity is relevant today and communicating the message about. Um, Jesus and the Gospels in a way that people might connect with today. And and your book does that in a fascinating way. And one of the things that really impacted me was the way you talk about the cross yeah. as this um, as, as this this pivotal moment, but also the power of it and the influence it's had in the culture. Like and and I think you make some links to it with understanding how we couldn't have human rights if it wasn't for the cross. And and that's actually encouraged my faith. And and it's just been amazing. I've brought it up lots of times. I'd love it if you could explain that to our audience a bit more. Why, why you think the cross is so key to many aspects of our Western culture today? Well, I, th- I think that one of the measures of Christianity's kind of hold on the West, ironically, is that we've become completely desensitized to it. And things that to people in the early generations of uh, 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 of Christianity spread appeared utterly shocking, outrageous, countercultural, just strange, bizarre. Now we are so desensitized to them that we just take them for granted. And one of the profoundest manifestations of that is the assumption that that is, you know, absolutely roiling the Western world at the moment, America perhaps particularly, but everywhere across the West, the assumption that um, those who are persecuted, those who suffer, those who are at the bottom of the pile, somehow um, it's not just that they have a right to be kind of raised up, but that their very suffering gives them a quality of dignity that perhaps their mm-hmm. persecutors, that the strong, the oppressors don't possess. Uh, and by and large, we in the West seem to take this absolutely for granted that this is the right you know this is the right thing um where does this idea come from well it's it's absolutely focused in the central image of christianity which of course is a criminal nailed to a torture of uh, an instrument of torture and the cross in the roman world did not signify the power of the weak over the strong it signified the opposite it was the emblem par excellence of Roman power and of the right of the Romans to put to death uh, those who rebelled against the authority of Rome. Uh, whether it whether whether that was as a um, uh, an insurrectionary in a in a Roman province, or more particularly a slave in rebellion against a master, and the reason that crucifixion was seen as the paradigmatic torture for a slave was that it was protracted, it was agonizing, but above all, because it was public. And so um, if you were nailed to a cross, essentially you served as a kind of billboard for Roman power. I mean, I'm sure lots of people watching this podcast will have seen Spartacus, and you'll remember that Crassus mm-hmm. nails slaves up on crosses all along the Appian Way. And these are kind of like billboards saying, you know, look at what we can do. If you mm-hmm. dare to rebel against our power, this is going to be your fate. So the idea that um, 
someone who had suffered this fate might in some way be a part of the divine is an absolutely lunatic one. It's, it's not, there's nothing odd to the Romans in the idea that a man can become a god because Julius mm. Caesar becomes a god, Augustus Caesar becomes a god. But these are great conquerors, these are great rulers. The idea that a criminal who suffered the death of a slave might be a god, and not just any god, but you know, the one god who has created the entire cosmos, that's lunacy. And Paul, the first person mm. to write about the cross, says as much. You know, he says it's a stumbling block to the Jews, but to everyone else, in other words, to the Greeks, the Romans, this is madness. And we need to get a sense of just how countercultural Christianity was, and therefore, by extension, how revolutionary it's been in its impact. We need to get back and see that. We need to reawaken ourselves, to resensitize ourselves to the shock and horror of what crucifixion represented to the Romans and not just see it as a kind of, you know, an, a, an emblem that our, our, our sense kind of bounces off like a pebble being skimmed across a, a, a lake surface. And I think that, that, that for, you know, you talked about how um, you're overtly evangelical about this. I think the problem for, for, for practicing Christians in the West isn't in a sense that the West is no longer Christian. It's, it's precisely that it does remain Christian. And mm -hmm. so many of the aspects of Christianity that it were its USPs have kind of gone because everyone shares in yeah. them. And so it becomes yeah. very difficult for Christians to say that they have a unique message because actually that <laughs> unique message is now accepted by everyone, even if they're not Christian. And, and yet I've heard you talk about how, um, I, I listened to another podcast where the question was something like, well, what would you say Christians should be doing in this situation? And, and you pointed, again, um, to the foolishness or, or, or craziness of the message of the cross or, or the things about Christianity that are unusual, weird um, today. And, and it's funny because, again, that's, that's what we so often talk about as, as a podcast or as an organization. We say we've got to talk about the power of God in the cross. And that's what stands out today. It's not just the values, the Christian values that everybody has, but those unique things. And, you know, I just just a comment on this, like, as I said, it, it really challenged me to rethink. And for our audience, just to emphasize this again, you're coming at this so much from uh, the perspective of a historian. And that's very powerful because it's easy for us as followers of Jesus to, to say, you know, the cross is important. Christianity is important. But for you to have done such an in-depth study from a historical perspective and to look at and to trace the effects of the cross and of the Christian message was was powerful to me. And I, I've brought it up. You know, I often I love having conversations with people that think differently, that believe differently to me. And I, I've brought it up with people who would consider themselves atheists or from different backgrounds. And they would, uh, you know, often the conversation goes to human rights and the importance of this you know our, our humanism our, our philosophy of our culture will defend these values and i'll say well you know we have to think about where those came from yeah. you know and they came from the cross and i'll i'll quote you or things like that and they're, they're like for them that's often so new they're like what what are you talking about the relation between human rights and the cross and jesus you know it's interesting to me that it's it's something that comes as a shock to many today i wonder if you might comment on that is there a reason why it's so people haven't uh, don't make that link anymore because, as I say, we take it for granted, um, and, and certainly, I, I you know, I, I, I came to understand the role that crucifixion played through studying Roman society. And I wasn't writing about Christianity, but yeah. I, but but as it happens, the only detailed account we have of a, a, a crucifixion is that found in the New Testament. So we have these four four accounts of it. 
we, we, we have no other accounts, almost because the Romans regarded it as so revolting and disgusting that they didn't want to talk about it. And there's a sense, you know, Paul is, a, is embarrassed about it. I mean, he proclaims it, but he's clear, you know, he's aware of how embarrassing it is. And um, Christian writers throughout the early years of, of the Christian period continue to acknowledge that, yeah, you know, it is really embarrassing that Jesus died on a cross. And they, they will say that's kind of the point, but it's a, a, a kind of, ooh, okay, we've got to go through this. We've got to break through the pain barrier of this. Um, and I, you know, I, I, I experienced that. I, I kind of came to understand that intellectually in the, in the abstract, but then I came to experience it very viscerally while I was writing the book because um, I paused and made a film about um, the theological underpinnings of what the Islamic State were doing in Northern Iraq. Um, and went there. And I went to a, a town called Sinjar, which I, I mentioned in, at the end of, of Dominion, this experience. Um, and Sinjar was the, the, the main center for Yazidis, who were a religious minority in Iraq, who I'm sure lots of your listeners will remember, were targeted very, very viciously and savagely, even by mm -hmm. uh, ISIS's own standards. So, so lots of the women notoriously were rounded up and enslaved, girls as young as the age of eight were sold into sexual slavery um, and treated exactly as the Romans would have treated the women and girls um, and children of a, a town that the legion stormed. Uh, and a lot of men were killed and some were crucified. And I went to this town, Sinjar, which had been recaptured by the Kurdish militia a few weeks before. And I was in a town where people had been crucified. And the people who had done these crucifixions were a couple of miles away across no man's land. So within mortar range, um, you know, uh, uh, terrifyingly close. Wow. And what was what was kind of filled me with a sense of existential dread, I, I realised, was that for the first time, I was kind of up against uh, people who viewed crucifixion as the Romans had viewed crucifixion, mm. as a way of um, broadcasting their own power and intimidating those who would rebel against it. And, and humiliating and shaming and uh, torturing people in the, the most brutal way. And the cross had none of the weight of signification that it had for me, that it had for, 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 for almost everyone I knew, um, that it had even for the most avowed anti-Christian atheist in the West, Everyone in the West knows that if if you're injured and a, a, you know a, an ambulance turns up and it's got a cross on it, that's good news. But for ISIS, the cross, that's not what it represented. It represented what what it had for the Romans. So for me, it was like kind of going to Jurassic Park and suddenly finding myself facing a tyrannosaur. It was that frightening. It was you know you brought up close against something that you might always have studied but had never thought to meet it kind of in the wild. Wow, and that's. That's uh, that. That was, you know. I came back and I rewrote the the, the book so that I, I began with crucifixion. Wow. And uh, and I decided that I was absolutely going to put um, Paul's attitude to crucifixion and the crucified Jesus. Yeah. At a central point in the book, and there's a kind of symmetry in the book because the topic is so huge that that, that I have to oppose a kind of symmetry. So Paul writing about the cross appears in the third chapter. And then um, when I was finishing the book, the third chapter from the end has the other great figure, I think, in, in the story that I'm telling, 
um, the great figure who properly wrestles with and understands the nature of crucifixion, what it represents. And that's Friedrich Nietzsche, probably the most intellectually challenging mm -hmm. atheist uh, in history, I think. And he is challenging because he does understand what the cross represents. Because most atheists, they reject the Christian God, but they keep hold of Christian values and beliefs. You know, they continue to believe that there's an inherent, all human beings have an inherent dignity, that, that human beings have the right to, to certain, um, you know, to, to, to help, to, to shelter and food and water, or whatever. Um, and they continue to believe that, um, you know, that, that it's better to, uh, to suffer than to impose suffering. But Nietzsche didn't buy into any of that because Nietzsche lamented the, right. the, the taming of, of, of Greek and Roman attitudes to power. He regarded Christianity notoriously as a slave religion. He saw it as sapping the strong and the powerful and the mighty and the handsome and elevating those who, who, who properly should be kept at the bottom of the pile. And those are the implications that he drew from his understanding of what the cross properly represented and how much of a, a rupture Christian valorization of the cross really is. You know, it's um, wow. <clears throat> you talk about Kurdistan because uh, Ben and I went, were on tour there before, just a little while before ISIS came in. And so uh, when I saw those images of the crucifixions that you're talking about or how they were beheading people, I understand the horror that you felt because it was not just some abstract thing, you know, and how we've made the cross, you know, a piece of jewelry that you wear around your neck and we don't really understand the significance of it. But another part that I think I would say that uh, <clears throat> if you read Paul, that he says the most significant part of the cross is that Jesus isn't still on the cross. Right. And so that, the resurrection. Right. That he, and if he, and Paul said, if, if, if Jesus did not raise from the dead, then we should be, we're the most, should be the most pitied of all people. Yeah. And so, and it was such a known fact that Jesus, um, said that he was going to rise from the dead, that they actually had guards uh, in front of the tomb so they could bring him out and show that he was still dead after three days. But as you know, that didn't happen. So what is your, what do you think about the resurrection? How do you feel about that? Well, as Paul says, you know, if, if Christ did not rise from the dead, then we're all fools and, and, and our belief is worth nothing. Um, it's, it's, and, and in a way that goes back to what you were saying, Luke, about how, um, Ultimately, the whole edifice of Christian morals and beliefs is 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 founded on the idea that Jesus did rise from the dead, and that something spec you know the strange the strangest thing imaginable really did happen. And unless, in a sense, the strangeness of that, the weirdness of it, is is what animates the entire belief system, and. Really, that's that's what I came to understand was that all the, um, the the values and beliefs that I have as a liberal belief in human rights, um, belief in 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 the inherent dignity of human beings and the inherent equality of human beings, that these were myths as well, and and that in a sense to believe in them re requires as, at least as much a leap of faith as believing in the risen Christ, and that therefore that that all of us. Unless, unless we go the full Nietzsche, are kind of believing in something improbable, uh, because it's incredibly improbable to believe that that human beings have an inherent dignity. If you think that, um, 
you know, there's no God and there's no there's no coordinating um, explanation or reason behind creation. You know, we're all just atoms. Uh, so, you know, where's the value in human beings? You know, we're just we're just nature. We we have no inherent quality at all. Um, and and you know, what's to stop the strong from kicking sand in the face of the weak? In that case. Well, I hope you enjoyed part one of our two-part conversation with historian Tom Holland. Uh, part two should come out real soon. If it's not out already, uh, if it is, go ahead and check that out. In the second part, Tom dives deeper into the impact of Christianity on Western culture. Uh, and again, for context, he is not a professing Christian. Uh, he obviously esteems Christianity very highly, but he makes his claims from a purely historical perspective. And he's often criticized for it by his peers and other historians uh, who don't necessarily like uh, giving that much credit uh, to Jesus and to Christianity for its impact and influence on Western culture. Uh, so make sure you listen to part two. Uh, if you'd be so kind as to rate this podcast on iTunes and leave us a review, uh, that helps us out uh, with the algorithm, but also it lets us know what you think, which is why we do this. Uh, consider joining our Provoke and Inspire podcast community on Facebook. Uh, this is a place for you to dive deeper, to ask questions, uh, and just be part of our journey as we discover how can we be faithful for Jesus in a post-Christian culture. Okay, we'll talk to you next time. Peace. Thanks for listening to the Provoke and Inspire podcast. To listen to past episodes, search Provoke and Inspire on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever podcasts are found. See you next time.